Welcome to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. I'm Stephen Dubner. Joining me today in the studio, AJ Jacobs. Hello, AJ. Hey, Stephen. As you know, AJ, and as our listeners know, here's the way it works. We will have a guest who will tell us some interesting fact or idea or story, and you and I will hear them out, we'll ask some questions, and then we will judge them on three simple criteria. Number one, did they tell us something we truly did not know? Number two, was it worth knowing? And number three, was it demonstrably true? So on the line today, we have, I believe, from Washington, D.C., Indiana Senator Todd Young. Senator Young, is that you? I'm here. Great to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us. We know a little bit about you. We know you're a freshman senator from Indiana. Uh, Before that, you were in the House for a few terms. And before that, a military background. Tell us a little bit more just about yourself, please. Yeah, so uh, I grew up in the Indianapolis area, uh, went to public school, uh, was, uh, was a soccer fanatic growing up, and, and uh, my prowess in soccer, such as it was, took me to the Naval Academy. I became a Marine, um, you know, spent a little time in the business world, and boom, four kids later, here I am, a U.S. Senator. <laughs> <laughs> four kids later, because you knew the, the route to ensure the financial future of your family was by getting into politics, plainly. <laughs> Precisely, that's right. And talk a little bit about your service to date in Congress and Senate, some of the committees you've been on, and kind of what your mission is, if it, as it were. So I've been uh, on multiple committees over in the House of Representatives, uh, the Budget Committee, and uh, I was on the Armed Services Committee, and then the Ways and Means Committee, where my focus there was on trying to help the poor, the vulnerable, the at-risk However, I could by uh, changing existing programs, eliminating those that aren't serving people well, uh, critically evaluating our government programs and implementing new ones if there are gaps in services. Mm-hmm. And I know that politics are relatively important, but let's get to the really important thing, which is soccer. Tell me how <laughs> fanatical you still are and uh, what that means in your life. You know, I am fanatical enough to get a bit excited when watching my seven-year-old daughter play, if that <laughs> gives you any sense of just how fanatical I am. Uh-huh. Um, okay. I don't have enough time to watch it, uh, but uh, yeah. I, I still love the sport. And, and, and Senator, uh, yeah. um, who is the best player in the Senate? Is it you? Oh, goodness. Um, I don't think that any others play. So by default, uh, I win. And Congratulations. I was, I, as as uh, I guess now a politician, I love uh, uncontested races. So, uh, yes, uh-huh. I think I have that go. title of being the best. Yeah. Okay. So, Senator yeah. Young, I'm told that you came to tell us something we don't know. So in 35 states, we, we know that election ties are decided by a game of chance. So I want to give you some examples. Um About 20 years ago, in 1988, after a New Mexico mayoral tie, they flipped a coin to see which candidate would pick the game of chance. Uh, So that was the first step. And then the winner decided to play one hand of poker, and he actually won that race with a flush. So uh, I won with a flush? That sounds like a stacked deck, doesn't it? But wait, so the poker game happened, the winner had a flush, and then went on to serve in the House, was it, you said? Uh, to serve as mayor of this uh, ah. town in, in New Mexico. But I, I get another couple of uh, other examples. So t- in 2015, there's a Mississippi House of Representatives race, and uh, it was decided by drawing straws. And the Democrat won, and uh, that prevented Republicans from having a supermajority in the state legislature. So pretty consequential, uh, drawing the right straw there. And then in 2015, uh, there was a mayoral race in Florida, and the Tide candidates 
um, actually had a duel, and and uh, one died. And no, I'm making that one up. But um, uh, they they drew for the high card in the deck. And the winning mm-hmm. candidate uh, pulled the ace of clubs. So when you asked how I became uh, a senator, um, I felt like my response was, you know, outright boring uh, compared to uh, playing a hand of <laughs> poker or drawing straws or, or so forth. All right. So let me ask you this. There's always that argument about uh, the value of any one vote. And, and people use this in a number of ways to justify, you know, trying to get higher voter turnout. One argument against that is that the closer a vote is and the higher the stakes are in an election, let's say take it all the way up to the presidential election, the more likely the outcome is to be decided not by the voters, but eventually by a judge or a panel of judges. So in the instances that you're talking about, these games of chance, those states you're saying that is the rule on the books, correct? That it's not judges involved. It's not some electoral committee. It's really literally a game of chance in some election office. Yeah, that's right. And how many of your decisions in the Senate are decided by coin toss? Like the healthcare, for instance, was that a coin toss or did you pick a card? What was it? So they're never decided by a coin toss. You know, I like to say, (laughs) for me, there's no such thing as a hard vote uh, as a legislator. Um, You may, your explanation may be a difficult explanation, right? You don't want to be misunderstood as to why you voted a particular way. But after extensive study and consultation with those you represent and so forth, you know, I feel like I I know the right way to vote, uh, the way that is in the best interest of my country and my constituents. But sometimes things are complex. So, no, definitely I, I don't have to resort to the coin flip. Or the hand of poker. I'm not quite sure how that would work, but yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. As everyone in the world is sick of hearing, we seem to be at an all-time low in partisan politics in the U.S., although there are a lot of historians who argue that we're nowhere near an all-time low. That said, um, talk for a moment about the difference between the game of getting elected and then the game of governing. Well, you know, it, it, it's winner-take-all in an election. It's not always like that in the legislative process, right? Uh, oftentimes you get um, 70% of what you want in a given uh, piece of legislation. Uh, you get 30% uh, stuff you don't want. And uh, in the end, you, you got to see if it meets that threshold test. Does this put uh, the people of Indiana, the people of my country in a better position uh, than not? Uh, if it does, uh, then you tend to vote for it. At least that's my approach. I see something that you're involved in is called the Social Impact Partnership to Pay for Results Act, which sounds like the kind of thing we've covered (laughs) on on Freakonomics Radio quite a bit, which is connecting outcomes to uh, appreciation or pay. Can you talk about what your connection and appetite for that is and what you're trying to do? For decades, we as a country have seen government programs fail to serve the poor, the vulnerable, our at-risk populations, uh, in a way that they are intended to serve them, or they serve them uh, in a suboptimal way, right? Uh, really poorly targeted programs, even if they do make some difference uh, in the lives of the vulnerable. And uh, I don't want to generalize. There are some programs out there that uh, are uh, must uh, continue, should continue, but almost every program can be improved. So um, discussions around improving these programs so tend to revolve around throwing more dollars at them. And so I was looking for a different model. And it occurred to me that in each of the communities I represented, 
there were not-for-profit groups, community groups, even private businesses that were coming up uh, on a regular basis with unique but effective ways to holistically serve these at-risk populations and addressing intractable challenges like homelessness, like infant mortality, like asthma in low-income communities. And, and so um, how do we scale up all these evidence-based solutions, right? First, you focus on outcomes. You don't focus on inputs, right? Second, private investment in proven policies, proven with a rigorous evidence base, like randomized controlled trials across multiple sites, is what social scientists uh, would, would call proven. And then the last piece of it is, is pure Benjamin Franklin, right? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So we don't want to remediate problems, which is typically what government does. We want to prevent problems in the first place. That improves lives, and it saves money in the process, too. Switching around incentives is, as, as we all know, really tricky. So to reward prevention rather than treatment, it's hard to do. So talk about an instance that you've seen that does work and yeah. then how the remuneration happens. How do, you, how do you reward those people for getting in on the prevention end? Okay. So um, one great example, I'll bring it home to the Indianapolis area because uh, Goodwill of Central Indiana uh, is currently uh, in the process of implementing the Nurse Family Partnership. Now, the Nurse Family Partnership already exists in multiple other states, and it's designed to reduce uh, the rate of infant mortality and to improve not just maternal health, but to improve the health of babies. Uh, And the way it works is really simple. Uh, You dispatch social workers working with uh, registered nurses uh, into the homes of low-income mothers-to-be. And then those social workers, after the birth, continue to work uh, with the parent and the child to ensure that the child is, is properly stimulated. Not only do health outcomes improve, thus saving uh, federal money and state money on Medicaid dollars, Um, but you also save money on special education and a host of other things. So if you can have private individuals or not-for-profits or philanthropies scale up the nurse-family partnership and hit uh, agreed-upon outcomes in terms of improving the lives of the mother uh, and that young child, then you can estimate with a a degree of of precision the amount of money you're going to save, right? You pay back your investors only if they hit those outcomes, but you pay them back out of the avoided expenditure. So you create a kind of market, right, to improve lives, to save taxpayer money, and we all benefit in the process. I know that this idea that you're talking about, it's been popular in a lot of quadrants academically at least and yeah. and intellectually not just on the right but on the left but that said i'm guessing one form of pushback against this kind of idea comes from people who don't like to see private sector firms profiting from providing services that typically governments have provided and i'm guessing also especially coming from a republican like yourself there might be a suspicion that what this is really about is a, a form of downsizing government or even washing hands of responsibility for these social cares so just you know give me your best argument why you don't believe that's true 
Yeah, so I, I'm really glad you asked that question. Um, this policy really preempts the left-right divide on, on social policy. There's a recognition by, you know, frankly, the Obama administration, which embraced this idea that we are not serving uh, our poor, our vulnerable, our at-risk effectively. Uh, based on social science, based on evidence. And so there's a moral imperative for us to get rid of those programs over a period of time that are failing to serve uh, those populations well or to fundamentally improve them or to supplant them with programs uh, that uh, are more effective. I don't know how, mm-hmm. how one could argue with that. Yeah. The other benefit to this uh, program is incredibly nimble, right? So if, if you identify... Uh, a intervention that uh, is improving some intractable social ill, right? Recidivism, for example. Then we allow people to go out there to try and replicate that intervention in another geography with another group of individuals. And if they're unable to replicate that program with fidelity, you get a couple of really positive things out of it that you wouldn't get out of a government program. First, uh, we don't spend loads of money on it, right? Right. This nut is on the investors. So so the taxpayers aren't paying for failure. They're uh, they're only paying for success. Imagine that. Also, I guess you've inevitably got a shorter time frame than a lot of government projects, gen- right? A lot of government programs kind of have an on and off switch at most, and the off switch can be hard to find, whereas these are, I guess, more concrete units of projects that can be handled more nimbly, yeah? Yeah, there's a, there's a defined time frame within which you have to yield results, right? Uh, the, these programs don't have a perpetual life. And yeah. if, you, if you fail to hit the agreed-upon goals, right, even if you improve lives but you don't hit the goals, uh, you're not paying folks back. But here's the really cool thing about it, right? So in a government program, you only find out about the successes. Because imagine if you're in charge of some government department, you issue a press release or you go hold a press conference when your new program works, but you hear nothing about programs that don't work. They just continue to be funded, and that's how we measure generosity, right? (laughs) And so in this instance, you learn from uh, a failure to replicate successes, and uh, you can improve your ability. So we would make all of our evaluations of programs, these independent evaluations that occur to see whether you hit your goals or not, we'd make those public so that uh, the person who wants to try next... And who does the evaluating? It would be like the RAND Corporation, right? Right. They're not governmental. Mm -hmm. They're a respected um, uh, third party with absolutely no ideological bent. And so that would all be negotiated into the contract. You may have detected by now, I'm a fan of this kind of thinking because I think it you know, makes a lot of sense for the world generally. But I would extend it even into the realm of, of you guys, you, the elected officials, and here's why. I firmly believe that most people who get into politics do it for all the right reasons. But then the incentives that uh, kind of present themselves once you're running and once you're in office are not really the ones that we, the public, want. What you guys need to do is raise enough money to uh, get elected and then retain uh, popularity and or power and kind of perpetuate yourself. And I realize that's a, a very cynical summary of, I'm sure, not you, but some politicians. So here's the idea. Not me, Let's but align... every other politician but me, right? Yeah, okay, exactly. I'll, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. <laughs> here's the idea. Yeah. 
let's remunerate them for the work that they do. In other words, let's say there's a third party who assesses the value of the legislation. Let's say in year 10 and 15 and 20, we measure those ideas against how successful they've been. And if they've been successful, let's write a check for $5 million to Arnie Duncan or, or whatever. So what about the idea of somehow realigning the incentives of elected politicians to better serve the needs of the public that elects them? Um, it's a creative idea. Um, and, you know, you, you, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, there are a lot of other factors that play into one's ability uh, to actually accomplish their objectives, uh, you know, external factors. If Arne Duncan's happens to serve uh, during, uh, you know, a time when there's a, an attack on the homeland, you know, then, then that could complicate um, his efforts uh, to accomplish his objectives. But I like the idea, right? I like the idea of more accountability. And I like the idea of uh, having some churn uh, in our Mm -hmm. policy, right? If something's not working, let's get rid of it and try something new. Send me a bill, send me the details, and uh, I'll take a look. All right, sounds good. Speaking of a bill and the details, what is the status of the Social Impact Partnerships to Pay for Results Act? So um, we had broad bipartisan support. We passed it out of the House of Representatives and it lay dormant in the United States Senate. I have reintroduced it, and I have to say it didn't get any traction after I announced I was running for Senate. Um, I'm going to encourage all of my uh, colleagues to listen to this show and uh, perhaps persuade them to sign on. And perhaps some of your listeners can call their U.S. senators and say, look, this is a good idea. Very good. Senator Todd Young, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to speak with you. All right. Great to speak with you. Thanks. A.J. Jacobs, Senator Todd Young, telling us a couple pieces of information there about tiebreakers and electoral procedures and then the whole notion of uh, social impact partnerships. Yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff to dissect. First of all, the idea of coin tosses. Is that a rational way to make decisions? I found a great article in this scholarly journal, Judgment and Decision Making. It said people are very resistant to coin tosses because it seems so random. But actually, it can be a very rational way because it saves time, it saves resources. And and you can't really blame the coin, I guess. Yeah, You can't blame the coin. Um, on the other hand, it's not always fair because uh, it is not actually 50-50. Because why? Well, for instance, the penny, the Lincoln side has more metal on it than the the oh, other well, he's side. a big head. Yeah. <laughs> and in the beard. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah. a lot of weight. <laughs> so uh, it's it's uh, more tails if okay. you flip a penny, especially if you spin a penny. That's the worst. What else, AJ? I thought your idea to incentivize politicians is brilliant. Okay. I think we got to do Thank it. You. I'm thinking of doing it in my own house <laughs> to incentivize my kids because why should I be giving equal amount of money when I die to all of them mm. if one is nicer to me? There's a whole economic school of research on this about when is the optimal period in one's life as the offspring to be nice to the parents. Oh. So some would say, you know what? Don't waste your time until they're old because <laughs> it's all about the end game. <laughs> I see. Okay. It's actually called the rotten kid theorem. Rotten it's kid. It's a real thing. AJ Jacobs, I think it's time now to evaluate Senator Young against our three criteria, something we did not know, worth knowing, and demonstrably true. So I felt that neither of his um, 
presentations were in and of themselves super strong. The tiebreaker thing was interesting-ish. I didn't totally not know it. It's not that useful. But I did like that he brought something of that nature to us. And then he had a whole second thing in his pocket, this notion of remaking the public-private partnership. Right. I, you know, I got to give him credit for um, for uh, telling us something we didn't know too much about that potentially pays off long-term. I would say what I liked was I did like the game of chance. I actually didn't know that. And I love that he embraced this idea of evidence-based legislation. I... As someone who likes evidence, I would like to actually see the evidence whether the his evidence-based <laughs> legislation has evidence to support it, So, which I, I don't know. I thought that uh, he went into a little bit of politician speak mm-hmm. there and instead of talking yeah, it's hard to, to get. I think that's hard to get away from if you're a politician. Well, I heard Al Franken do an interview, and he said that strategy of most politicians is to be as boring as possible because mm. you don't want to be quoted. You don't want to be quoted except on your talking points. At the risk of sounding um, less boring than I perhaps should, I will say that I've never been bored by you, A.J. Jacobs. (laughs) Right back at you. Nice to talk to you.